All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Harvey Hahn. We're going to get going in a minute here. I'm going to share my screen. Um, if you guys don't mind, just I have a short word of prayer with everyone before we get going here. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we have together. Even though it's not together physically, we're here at least virtually. Um, let everyone be able to learn something that they can take back and make themselves more healthy and just more happy and more mentally engaged, dear Lord. The whole point of all these things really that you want us to live life to the fullest and let's be able to do that in your name. Amen. Okay. So I'm going to be talking about intermittent fasting and it's actually a fast way to live longer. Okay. So a lot of people consider um, fasting, crashing, and this is what it kind of looks like to most people. But it's actually not that bad. Now, just to kind of Take this into context here. A lot of fasting was done for religious region, reasons. Now, they actually did a survey in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, about 55,000 people, and they asked them, does diet affect your ability to be saved? And incredibly enough, over half the people said yes or they're not sure. Um, but what the, the official church position and what I believe as well is that if you're a vegetarian or not, whether you fast or not, it's not salvation. It's not an issue that's going to get you into heaven. Is just something that may make you a little bit more healthy. All right. Now, typically things happen in three, and there's three big things. Now, people may not like basketball, may not like LeBron, but the Lakers did win the championship. And we know about these big threes that are formed in the NBA. This is the first one down Miami. Then he made another big three in Cleveland when he won a championship there. But there's even a bigger three, which is the Trinity. But in health, there's a very specific big three, and that's diet, exercise, and sleep stress. Now there's one thing that kind of puts all these things together and that's basically intermittent fasting. And that's what we're gonna talk about. Now, like I mentioned, things always happen in threes. So David Sinclair, who's a PhD from Harvard, published a book called Lifespan near the end of 2019. Then the New England Journal of Medicine, which is probably the most prestigious medical journal, published a review article um, on intermittent fasting at the end of 2019. And a review article basically only occurs when there's enough data to push it all together and kind of summarize the data for us. Finally, and I'm going to go over this study in detail, Wilkerson and his group published probably the easiest and best outcome data on intermittent fasting in early 2020. Lifespan. Let's talk about David Sinclair's book here. So he had a couple of interesting things in the book, and this is what really got me interested in intermittent fasting. The first thing is he called this the information theory of aging. He believes that it's not so much about staying healthy, but actually not getting old and not aging. And the way you do that is by taking care of our DNA. And so all the mechanisms we can employ that actually keep our DNA the same um, way it was when we were born is going to make our lives, proteins, um, similar and not get more broken down, which is what the aging process is in his mind. All right. And what he found in all, a lot of his research is low-level stress, activates your survival pathways, and it tunes up your epigenetic makeup. Now, the three things that he found that are really um, useful in this was hunger, intermittent fasting, exercise, and also cold exposure. Those three things turned on your survival pathways and actually made people live longer, but also kept the machinery and the DNA actually working well. Now, one big part, and he says the best mechanism to keep your DNA as um, clean as possible is what we call calorie restriction or CR. And that's probably the best way to prevent chronic diseases as well. Now, intermittent fasting is a subgroup of calorie restriction. One of the big things that you'll find is just because you 
fast for a certain time period, you're obviously going to eat less, and so you take in less calories. The other important idea is what we call flipping the metabolic switch. And what you want to do is go from carbohydrate metabolism to fat metabolism and back and forth. And when you do that, your body actually gets better at doing both, burning fat and also burning carbs. And so if you don't have enough fat, it can burn the carbs. If you have enough carbs, it can burn the fat. So it can be ready for either situation, which obviously will have advantages because you're not always going to have an even amount of food uh, availability. All right. Now, this uh, term was coined by Dr. Matson, who actually wrote the New England Journal Review article that we're going to review as well. And it's achieved by playing low-level stress. Exercise, cold exposure, sleep, and intermittent fasting can all achieve flipping the metabolic switch. 5-2 intermittent fasting. This is one of the types of intermittent fasting. Let me move this. And the question is, who started it? Does anyone know out there? It would be great if we are all together because someone could shout out an answer. Um, but basically, let's read about this. Sorry. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And this is from Luke chapter 18. So basically, this is biblical. They used to fast two times a week. All right. Now, what's really cool is science has finally caught up with religion, and I'm going to show the data for that. Now, this is an example from um, Ellen G. White, um, who is a Seventh-day Adventist who helped me start our church. But she actually started skipping dinner. So she was fasting from lunch all the way to breakfast, and then she lost 25 pounds of weight and felt great doing it. Right? So some of these principles are over 100 years old. From the biblical example, we're probably talking you know, 2,000 years old. So it's been around a long time, and now the science is really finally catching up to it. Now, here's the New England Journal Review article on intermittent fasting. Now, this is kind of a complicated graph, but in the middle is a cell. And on the top, you can see intermittent fasting um, and some inputs. On the bottom, these are all the results we want to see. We want to see stress resilience, proteostasis, better glucose or lipid metabolism, mitochondrial biogenesis, more energy, and then most importantly, cell survival. Now, one other interesting thing is right in this corner here. That's the brain, and there's something called BDNF that increases with intermittent fasting. BDNF is called brain-derived neurotropic factor. Um, one of the kind of jokes is, is that's like miracle grow for the brain. It helps repair the brain, and helps grow your neurons, and helps grow the connections to speed up the processes in your brain. Um, for more information on this, I highly recommend this book called Spark. It's written by Dr. John Ratti. He's actually a psychiatrist, but he has an interest in using exercise to increase BDNF, and that treats anxiety, depression, and a lot of other um, medical conditions. Now, why would we even want a better brain? A lot of people go down the intermittent fasting pathway. They want to lose weight. Um, they want to get off medications, etc. But the brain is really, really important here. Now, here's a gross brain um, and an autopsy table. But fasting is good for the brain. And there's a good reason for this. Why do we really want to have a better brain? The, the one reason I have started fasting and have kept doing it myself personally is my brain is much more mentally clear. I lost a little bit of weight with intermittent fasting. But the big thing is on those fasting periods, I think a lot quicker, get a lot more stuff done. Um, 
So I kept doing it just for that reason here. And then now I'm gonna talk about the real reason we do anything for our health, All right? Yeah, we can, we can try to live longer, get a six pack, lose weight, get off drugs, and that's great. Maybe you can live to 100 years, but that's really a really small short-term goal. What we really should be trying to do is, is live for eternity, and we can't achieve that without God. And all these things we do, exercise, sleep, eat better, fasting, these are all ways to live life fully, which is what he wants for us, and you will connect better with him. So I hope this is what you're going to experience as well. And this goes back to the diet of the mind. We want to restrict some calories. We want to fast from some things. But look at this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. That's Philippians 4.8. Just like right now, we can have our mind filled with stress, drama, movies, um, you know, trashy books. It's not a bad idea to actually take a diet or fast from those things. You can fast from electronics, um, fasting from work. People should take vacation and be totally disconnected from work, and people should have weekends off. These are all things that are very important for long-term health. Back to the New England Journal of Article. And what you need here is either a, a period of stress and then a period of recovery. And the two big things that really do that are intermittent fasting, you eat and fast, or exercise where you exercise and then you rest. Now, this is a, a really, the, the best thing about intermittent fasting is it's very easy to deploy, very easy to do. You can mix it up with whatever diet you want, um, whatever exercise program you want. All you got to do is not eat for a certain time period, which makes it really easy. So you don't have to even change your diet. You can eat the same, actually bad food, just less of it, and it'll make an impact. Now, here's kind of a sample of how you can kind of start it off. There's two big methods. One is the 5-2 method, which where you fast, which is drastically cutting down your calories two days a week, and the other five days you eat normally. Or in the middle here, what we call time-restricted feeding, where you'll only eat for like a 12, 10, or eight hour period, and the rest of the time, you're gonna fast. And you can slowly build into it, and this gives you kind of a little roadmap to try to do that. Um, and it, which is helpful because some people don't know how to exactly start, and some people jump in and go, I'm gonna fast for 18 hours, and that could be kind of hard on some people to start off that way. So it's good to kind of ease into it. Now there's a lot of benefits, I'm just gonna go through these real quickly. Behaviorally, it's easy to implement, like we just talked about. You can combine it with other lifestyle interventions, diet, exercise. And this is really cool. It actually reduces hunger over time. The more you do the fasting, the less hungry you get. makes it easier to do. It improves mood and cognition. On the physiology side, it drops your blood pressure, glucose, reduces insulin, and human levels here. Okay. And also cuts down your cholesterol levels as well. So also morphometrically, you lose weight, you lose fat, which is really important. You have decreased waist circumference, and more importantly, you lose visceral fat. But the risk is really important, and we'll talk about this a lot later on. You preserve your lean muscle mass. Muscle mass is really, really important. Now, this is an article by Wilkinson um, that made a huge splash when it came out about nine months ago, right at the beginning of the year. And so basically, they had these people only fast for um, about 14 hours, and they could eat for about 10 hours. So that's even that strict. And what they found is over time, 
with just 10 hours of eating, they had decreased body weight, decreased waist circumference, lower blood pressure, lower bad cholesterol, lower hemoglobin A1C, and slightly higher sleep. Now, the cool thing about this um, study is this. They didn't change their diet quality. They told them eat the same garbage you're eating before. Also, they did not add any exercise. They just said you can only eat during this time frame. All right. They're already on blood pressure medication. They're already on statins to treat their cholesterol. But even with that, they had further reduction in their numbers. Now, the really cool thing is they only dropped their calories by about 8.6%. And people will complain, like, how did they know? Everyone in the study actually took a picture of their food before they ate it and afterward. They sent it into the researchers, and the researchers calculated how many calories they ate. So it wasn't like just a, a survey where they were just saying, I guess I ate this much. They had pretty good data on how much they actually ate. They lost about seven pounds, and this only took about three months. So very easy to do, not a big commitment. They didn't change their diet or exercise. They only cut their calories by less than 10%, and they had a big impact on all their numbers, and they still lost weight. They did it in three months. So pretty powerful study. So what's the easiest way to fast? I'm pausing so you can think about it. But obviously, it's sleeping. You, you don't have to eat when you sleep. Pretty surprising? All right, let's look at some of the sleep data. And the important thing to remember is your RMR, your resting metabolic rate, that keeps going even when you're sleeping. Even when you're sleeping, you're still burning some calories, which is an important thing to remember. All right. Now, this is important, but about one-third of U.S. adults don't get enough sleep. And this is a huge problem. Um, what's really interesting is exercise is considered highly efficient. If you exercise hard for 20 minutes, you get a benefit for two or three days. Sleep, you need about seven hours every day or your body does not function well. Your brain does not function well. So sleep is very inefficient, but that's why it's just even that more important. Now, this is an interesting study where they looked at not just sleep duration, but they put it in together with all the other known cardiovascular risk factors, diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, um, cholesterol level, and smoking. And I'm not going to go through this whole slide, but basically sleep by itself was a strong enough signal to be an independent risk factor for cardiovascular death or, mor or morbidity. So sleep matters, just how much you sleep. Now, this is a great study looking at, they actually measured how much the people actually slept, and then they determined who's going to have a heart attack. And this study, what they found, basically, if you sleep less than six hours or more than nine hours, you're going to have an increased risk of having a heart attack. Now, the great thing is here, if you can slowly add one more hour to your sleep cycle, you actually can cut your heart attack risk by about 20%. So you can have a huge impact just by sleeping more. Most people I know wish they could sleep more. Here's a reason to sleep more. Now, a lot of people say, I don't want to sleep. I'm wasting time. Plus, I know I'm burning some calories during sleep, but if I stay awake, I'm going to burn even more. All right. And that's not actually the case here. So this is a great study. Altered salience network connectivity predicts macronutrient intake after sleep deprivation. Really complicated title, but I'm going to break it down for you guys. All right. First, we all, we all know this. If you don't sleep well and you're tired, you have bad willpower. If you walk by a free donut the next morning after having bad sleep, you're going to pick up that donut. You can't stop yourself. All right. There's some other things, though. At that night, you have increased calorie consumption, and the next day, for some reason, when they took the journaling for the food diaries for these people, they ate more fat the next day. 
how, why, I'm going to explain it. Now, there's something that happens when you don't sleep. They did MRIs in all these patients, and there's two studies. TSD means total sleep deprivation. One group slept normally. One group was kept awake the whole night. And then the next day, they had MRIs near their brain, functional MRIs. So you can see which parts are activated. And what they found is the people that had TSD, total sleep deprivation, they had increase in the reward centers of their brain. So the brain was activated to say, hey, I need to get something to satisfy myself. I deserve a reward. And we've all felt that, right? When you've done a, even a hard workout or you stayed up all night or you finished a big project, you're like, I deserve this. And then you go and just destroy your diet. Now, the next interesting thing is this. In the sleep-deprived subjects, this is the BLS baseline calorie intake. This is how many calories they ate when they didn't sleep that night. And this is how many calories they ate the next day. So you think you're burning more calories by staying awake than sleeping. But what's really happening is you're eating about a thousand extra calories as munchies and stuff to keep you awake. So there's three problems here. One is when you're not sleeping, you're eating munchies and you're having excess calorie intake. Two, your reward center is turned on. So the next day you want to go eat some really bad fatty food. Three, you're tired, so you have no willpower. So next day, if someone offers you some bad food, you're just going to take it. Or worse yet, or similarly, you're going to say, I'm too tired to exercise, and you're not going to do it. Lack of sleep is like a triple whammy here. All right, does anyone remember Gwen Jorgensen? I mean, the Olympics, because of COVID, the Tokyo Olympics have been postponed. But back in Rio, she won the gold for the women's triathlon for the United States. Now, this is a picture of her and her husband. Now, when they first met, they were both um, avid professional bike riders, but they quickly realized that she is a way better athlete. So what do you think they did? What do you think he did? He actually quit, and he became her cook, cleaner, and bike repair person. So she'll go out for like a big, long run or a ride in the morning, and he'll do the laundry and prepare lunch. She'll come back, eat lunch, and then take a nap. And then she'll go out and exercise again, and he'll clean the dishes, and do some more housework. So he does all this stuff for her. Now, Gwen sleeps about eight to 10 hours at night and takes a one or two hour nap every day. So if you do the math, she's sleeping 40 to 50% of her whole life. And she's a high performance athlete. For these people, sleep is a part of their training program. For us, we need to take sleep as a part of our health program. Your mood's bad, you're grouchy, your willpower is down, you eat more food, and then you don't want to exercise. Sleep is critically important. The other question I know you're all thinking of this right now is, how do we find a spouse like this guy? And he's awesome. All right. Now, I want to talk about exercise a little bit for um, the, probably the next uh, six or seven slides. But think in your mind that everyone thinks that cardio, cardio is probably the best way to drop weight. And that's actually a huge myth. All right. What do you call... Go, walking in the fat burning zone or jogging slowly in the fat burning zone five days a week. It's called the road to nowhere. And many people have gone through this pattern where they're doing the same 20, 30 minutes on the treadmill and they're not losing weight, not feeling better. Actually, they get more frustrated. They feel worse. Now, why, why is that? Because you're not burning any fat. Most people want to burn fat. To burn fat, you have to run probably about 90 minutes because we have enough glycogen stores that we will not tap into our fat stores until we burn all that glycogen off, all right? 
Now, this is another question. Does running make you really skinny? Not really. I'm a big runner. I'm not skinny. Here's the way to look at it. Does basketball make you tall? No. Tall people are drawn towards basketball. Skinny people are naturally good runners, so they start running. All right. Now, you can lose a lot of weight. I mean, I did with running. Um, but really, the really skinny people, the people have no fat, those people didn't get there by running. They were already there, and running just helped them a little bit more. And that's what we call an attribution error. We attribute something, but to the wrong cause. We see a skinny person jogging on the street, and we go, man, I got to start running so I can be skinny like that guy. That guy was born skinny, and he just likes to run because he's good at it. All right, attribution error. Now, in exercise, there's something called the law of diminishing returns. I don't know if you ever felt that. The more you practice something, at some point, you kind of plateau. All right, it's actually true, and they actually studied this. So there's two theories on exercise. One's called the constrained expenditure theory. The other one is the additive theory. Now, in the additive theory on the left here, what they think is the more you exercise, the more you walk, the more you run, you burn more calories. In the constrained theory, they think at some point, your body gets better at saving calories. And when it does that, you burn less calories. Which one is true? Well, they actually studied it. And unfortunately, it's the constrained theory. So they had these people tagged with radioactive water. They knew exactly how much they're metabolizing. So this was some guesswork. And what they found is as they kept walking more and more and more over the course of the day, at some point, their energy burn started to plateau. The body is incredibly made. The body will start trying to save calories when you exercise in case it needs it later. The same thing we're going to talk about later is as you lose more and more weight, your body will start slowing down its metabolism to save the calories. All right. Now, kind of bring it back to intermittent fasting. We kind of got off on a little sidetrack here. But there's some data that's really interesting about doing aerobic exercise either fed or in the fasted state. So I, I switched probably half a year ago to actually not eating breakfast and then running on an empty stomach. The first two months were horrible. I felt like I had no energy, but now it's much more easier to do. And the whole point of that is to try to tap in and train your body to burn fat earlier. And that's why I started doing it. All right. Now in this meta-analysis where they reviewed multiple studies running fasted or fed, what they found is um, people that ran in the fasted state had less insulin production. They had decreased glucose levels. And more importantly, if you look down here, overall, in all these states put together, they had more fat oxidation. They were burning more fat. Most people really don't want to lose weight. They want to lose all the fat they have on them. And there's one way to help you do that. Now, here's a really interesting study. What they did is they did alternate day fasting. Every other day, they fasted. And they combine that with um, endurance exercise, which is running. So it's going to be hard to see here, but basically the combination, ADF is all day fasting, exercise by itself, and the control group. And in all the levels, looking at factors like body weight, BMI, more importantly, fat mass, fat-free mass, which is muscle mass, and then waist circumference, which is a marker for visceral adiposity or visceral fat, all these markers were much better. You had bigger fat loss if you did the fasting plus the endurance exercise. So this, this could be a mechanism to have faster fat loss. Now, what about resistance training? Maybe you like to lift weights, you're not a big runner. It still works in that regard as well. So this is a state of NCAA women. So these people are already fit, 
have a lot of muscle anyway. Um, and they actually tested two groups. You either did not eat for 10 hours or you ate normal head breakfast and then you exercised. And what they found is the respiratory exchange ratio was lower in the fasted group. And that goes along with more fat metabolism and less carbon, carbohydrate metabolism. So yet another way, whether you're an endurance person or a resistance training weight person, um, you can burn more fat if you exercise in the fasted state. Epoch, not epic. So for, for the non-medical people, epic is probably the most popular well-known electronic medical record system in the United States. Most doctors don't really like it. Um, but what's epoch? Epoch is excess post-exercise oxygen consumption or otherwise known as the afterburn. And this is kind of the holy grail of weight loss. Can you do something that's gonna make you lose weight after you stop doing it? Because what happens is once you step off the treadmill, your metabolism starts going back down and your calorie burn starts going down. But there are some ways to actually burn more calories. I don't have time to talk about it, um, but yet, can it be done? Yes. Um, the two biggest things that um, induce EPOC in the shortest amount of time is resistance training and high intensity interval training, which I'm not gonna talk about in detail. But there's a secondary question with all this fat loss. What's more important, cardiac fitness or muscle strength and mass? And there's actually some really interesting data. I think most people would say cardiorespiratory fitness is most important. So this is a really interesting study. If you look at the top here, these are people of high muscle mass, but also either high fat, which is um, the black, and then green is low fat. So, and this is the opposite where this is um, low muscle mass and depending if you have high fat or low fat. But the big split, the difference in survival, your mortality rate, is the people with more muscle mass live longer, all right? The fat is not so much, a, not that important. It's important, but when you really get down to it, muscle mass is really important. And that's why people stress, especially for the elderly population, to really try to do some exercise, things like squats, resistance training, to keep up your muscle mass. You can stay independent, do well, and survive. Now, this is a really interesting study done by the UK Biobank. Now in England, just like in America and other places, they're really trying to get a bunch of your DNA data, get some information on you, blood tests, but also some assessment of your physical abilities. Now on the bottom is your genetic risk, either low, intermediate, or high, depending on what genes they found in your gene profile. But here they look at grip strength. And what you find is regardless of your genetic risk, the stronger just even your grip strength is, the more likely you are to live. So even a simple test can tell you what your mortality difference is going to be. Now, what's really interesting is physical activity. This is reported physical activity. This is what the patient will tell the doctor. I do so many minutes of cardio per week. That was not as strong as you can tell. Now, what was strong is when you put them on a treadmill, the people that had, you know, higher cardiorespiratory fitness running longer on the treadmill, regardless of their genetic risk, they also did better as well. All right, so strength is really, really important. Cardiovascular fitness is important, but probably muscle mass strength in the long term is probably even more important. Now, this is a really interesting study of hypertension. And what they show here is that this is the low fitness and this is low cardio uh, respiratory fitness or high cardio respiratory fitness versus low, middle, or upper muscle strength. And what you find if you're in the upper group in muscle strength, it didn't matter if, you're, if you had good cardio fitness or not. You had the best 
survival. In fact, you cut your mortality by half. There's a 50% reduction in your mortality rate based on you being in the strongest group in the study. All right, Pr pretty impressive results. The same thing in this study, basically weight training versus aerobic physical activities um, with long-term change in the waist circumference of men. And basically this is not doing any aerobic, doing a little bit, but not meeting the requirement or doing what you're supposed to do versus how much weight training you did. And what you find is the people did the, the highest amount of weight training actually had the biggest shrinkage of their waist. They lost the most fat. No one's building waist muscles to get bigger. All right. What's happening here is you're burning more fat. You're getting rid of it and you're actually getting smaller. And I think that's what most people actually want. Now this is back to the metabolism. This is an incredible study um, done on the biggest loser competition. All right. So when you, when you go into biggest loser, you quit your job, you go to the ranch, a chef makes you an organic 1,800 calorie, great meal every day. They clean it up for you. The other thing that happens is you have an exercise trainer work you out two times a day. Now, most of these guys use about 80, 90 pounds. What happens when they come back off the ranch? And this is what that study is going to show. So what they found here is 13 of the 14 contestants all regained their weight. This one patient, he didn't do that because he had gastric bypass surgery, and that's how he got the weight back off. Only one person kept the weight off of the 14. Now, what's really scary about this is they measured at the beginning of Biggest Loser, at the end of Biggest Loser, and, and six years at the end of the study, they measured their resting metabolic rate. And as you can see here, their metabolic rate went in the toilet. So even though they were losing weight, what their body did was slow down the metabolism so it can save calories. It was really sad. Uh, in one of the contestants, he, was, um, he had cut himself down to 800 calories a day in his diet, and he was still gaining weight. I can't think of anything more depressing than that. All right, so this is some of the things we have to kind of fight against. Now, if you look at the data here, this is the body weight change. They regained all the weight except for the one person. Now, this is important. There was a statistically significant increase in lean body mass, but as you can see, it was barely anything. And this is really important. They had a massive increase, basically probably back to where they were in their fat mass. All right, so they lost what they want, did not build up muscle, and they gained back what they didn't want, which was the fat. Now, why did, why did they fail? I think a lot of us can think of a lot of reasons, but there, there's some pretty common ones here. One is reality TV is not real. What I told you they got, when they went back to the real world, they didn't have a cook, they didn't have a personal trainer, they had jobs, kids, they're not going to work out four hours a day, and they have to cook their own meals. All right. But they didn't gain much muscle mass, which is the problem. All right. They had a serious drop-off in their exercise program. And this is really important. Their metabolic rate significantly dropped. All right. So as you're losing weight, I don't know how many people are at what stage um, in your weight loss journey, but you hit plateaus a lot of times that's because your metabolic rate is dropping off. So you're gonna have to change or shock the system to kind of get off that plateau. And this is really important. Without exercise, you can't cut calories enough. Your body is built too well, too efficient, too smart to waste calories. All right, now I, I have to talk about ketogenic diet for a little bit, because when you talk about intermittent fasting, there's a huge overlay of keto. 
and got to talk about which is the one to really give consideration to, which is the one really doing the work. Now, this is a, this is a great um, side story, but this is a picture of, of a bomber that came back to England and it was all shot up. And so the engineers looked at a bunch of airplanes, had a similar pattern, and they decided we need to reinforce the wings and the tail. Now, a, a Jewish Hungarian engineer named Abraham Wald said, you guys are wrong. Now, why were they wrong? Now, these are all the planes that made it back. All the planes that got shot up in the cockpit or the engines, they're the planes that didn't make it back. What, what Wald was telling them is they had suffered from what we call survivor bias. All right, that was their logic error. They were basing their assumptions on what had survived. This is another form of attribution error. They're giving credit to something that didn't deserve the credit. And I think that happens a lot with ketogenic diet. All right, so let's talk about this here, keto. A lot of the early weight loss is water. For every gram of carbs your body absorbs, it needs four grams of water to transport it. So you drop a lot of water weight. And that's what people like at the beginning. The biggest uh, change isn't really eating more fat, it's eliminating the garbage carbs. Half the US diet, SAD, the standard American diet, is hyper-processed carbs. Dr. Lindy Schwartz had a great talk talking about that um, for one of our plenary sessions. But basically, if you just cut that off, you would lose weight. If you have all the chips, soda, ice cream, desserts, pastries, you'd have a huge impact on your weight immediately. If you increase bad fats, then your cholesterol goes up. I never recommend the ketogenic diet. I'm a cardiologist um, because I am very worried that their lipids are going to go out of control and they're going to have a heart attack or stroke from adversely affecting their own lipids. And the most important thing is they may try to become ketogenic or achieve ketosis. But if you ask your friends, the vast majority never check if they're ketotic. So they don't even know if they're actually reaching their stated goal. All right. Intermittent fasting, it shrinks the stomach. Since it's not being stretched out, it's getting smaller. Then you get full faster and it helps you not want to eat more. It increases leptin in the long term, which is an anti-hunger um, hormone. We're going to talk about that later as well. Intermittent fasting is associated with the survival benefit. And then basically the minimum amount of fasting that has some kind of um, activation benefit is eight hours. Most people say probably 12 hours is the way to go though. All right. And you can start getting ketotic after about eight to 12 hours of fasting. So you can actually get what the ketogenic diet people actually want. All right, let's look at the data. Anyone know who this guy in the right top corner is besides me? Okay, that's Yuki Kipchoge. He actually is the first guy to run an under two hour uh, marathon. He's the current world record holder for the marathon. Obviously a skinny guy. He was born skinny, I'll tell you. All right, carbs are the best for performance in sports. Fat is not. All right, I'm trying to be fat adapted for several reasons, but it's not so I can run faster. All right, protein is best for muscle gains. So far, fat is not good for anything here. Keto is cool and trendy, and this is important. Um, keto is basically the repackaging of paleo, which is the repackaging of Atkins. Now, to sell keto, keto books, cookbooks, and stuff, you can't say this is just like Atkins. You have to be different. If I, went, if I went on the street and said, hey, I'm Harvey Hunt, I'm a cardiologist, and I'm like any other cardiologist, no one's going to come see me. All right? You have to kind of distinguish yourself to make you different, or no one's going to buy your product. The other thing is the internet and social media are the absolute worst places to get any real data. All right? 
So I've got the data for you. So one week ago, I went back to PubMed, which is the repository of all published medical literature. And this is what I found here. When you put in ketogenic diet and athletic performance, there's 35 published articles on that. If you put in ketogenic diet and fat loss, there's only 208 articles. If you put in intermittent fasting and exercise performance, there's 926 articles. If you put fat loss with intermittent fasting, you're over 2K articles. These are all published peer-reviewed articles talking about these two methodologies. So the science is strongly on the side of intermittent fasting, not ketogenic diet. And I know I probably made some people mad. Um, I just ask everyone just kind of keep an open mind and kind of look at this kind of data and see if maybe you want to make a, make a change. Maybe the ketogenic diet isn't the thing that's really making you lose weight or maybe it's not working for you already. Now, this is an interesting story, and this kind of explains keto in a nutshell on social media. So this is Sage Canada. He's a really successful ultra runner. All right, and these are guys, he runs like a 100-mile race and, and stuff like that. And here's a little um, uh, tweet from him. Why do people lose weight on keto diet? Um, because they eat less calories, lots of thermodynamics. But remember, weight loss does not always equal better health. That should not always be the goal. One can have a low BMI and be healthy. Totally true. Then he also says, yes, of course, but high protein and high fat meals are more filling, satiating. So they eat smaller portion size and many into keto are also into intermittent fasting. That's the overlap problem here. So they may only eat two meals a day instead of three, then they eat less calories. And then this is really, it's funny, he's not a scientist, but this is a great comment. Um, give me a list of the low carb, high animal fat keto cultures in our society. You know, we, we don't have those. They don't exist. They're not healthy. Now, what's also very interesting, Sage Canada, he's a, he actually likes keto diet, promotes it, um, but he doesn't call it keto. He's really into low carb, high good fats because he wants to burn fat, be fat adapted and run longer. All right. But what's interesting, oh, sorry. Um, Sage actually uses carbohydrates like gels and stuff during races. He also does all his long runs that we talked about in a fasted state. All right. All right. Let's get back to fat here. All right. I'm just going to mention this article, but basically it's not low carb versus low fat or high carb versus high fat. What's really important is diet quality. So also once again, Dr. Lindy Schwartz talked about this. Um, so I'm just going to sum it up real quickly. Diet quality is more important than the macronutrient type. You can be low carb, but you can eat healthy low carb and you're going to die faster. You can be high fat and eat really bad quality high fat diet and you're going to die faster. The most important thing is whatever you do, high or low carb, high or low fat, eat good quality of that nutrient and you're going to do okay. All right. Brown fat versus white fat. All right. There's actually a difference. All right. This is the instant six pack. Now, it's not just burning fat that's important for us, but you can actually change it. You can make your brown, white fat into brown fat or what we call browning the fat. And then probably a lot of people haven't talk, um, heard about this, but it's actually another um, way to increase your survival systems. So brown adipose tissue in humans, regulation and metabolic significance. So there's a bunch of different studies here, but the most important thing here is CIT, that's cold-induced thermoregulation. I should probably back up. 
the, the last time most of us had a lot of brown fat was when we were a baby. Brown fat is burned quickly to generate heat. Babies have small have a very um, small surface area. They're blowing heat off like crazy. They got to keep warm. So they have a lot of brown fat. They burn brown fat. Now what happens is there's very few things that stimulate brown fat. One of them is cold exposure. Now, if you can expose yourself to cold, depending on the study, you can burn in a day an extra 40 to 2,000 extra calories by burning extra brown fat. That sounds pretty cool because basically you're not doing it. You're sitting around and you're just burning fat. All right. And this talks about the weight loss on the bottom as well. Now, what they've also found that's interesting, as your BMI, which is your body mass index, goes down, your brown adipose tissue burning activity goes up. Now, the problem with this is they're not really sure if the skinny people are just super lucky and they just burn more brown fat or the brown fat activation makes you skinny. But basically, those are related to each other. And what's really interesting is basically by cold exposure, after about six weeks, you can actually change your body and increase your brown adipose tissue activity. So just cold exposure, going out there for about 20 minutes in the cold. Um, there's some hot cold um, protocols as well. They can actually make you burn fat, which is really like we talked about. That's really what people want to do. And this is, this is CIT. This is cold induced thermogenesis. And basically these guys are burning about 200 more calories than people that did not have cold exposure in the six week period. So you activate your brown fat and that burns calories and gets rid of fat, which is what you want. And that leads to decreased body weight. And it's the, the body weight we want to lose, it's losing fat. Now there's some other important things to think about. Um, this is a really interesting study from New England Journal of Medicine. What they found is in this study, these are people that have lost weight and kept it off for two years. They measured hunger hormones before in the middle and at the end of the study. And what they found is people that have lost weight, things like ghrelin, these hormones that make you hungry, they're up and they stay up for up to two years. The problem is you cannot fight when, if you are metabolically hungry, that's a very hard thing to fight against. So these people are constantly hungry and it's very hard to stick on a diet because being hungry is not a really good feeling. All right. Now we're gonna, I'm gonna bring this all together in a little bit. Now, leptin, I mentioned this very early, this is a hunger hormone, and actually it works on the fat cells. Kind of a complicated um, graph up here, but if you look at the top here, intermittent fasting, cold exposure, leptin, makes your body burn more fat, all right? So that's what we all like to do, all right? It's an anti-hunger hormone, not an acute reactant, but basically as you fast more, have more cold exposure, remember the cold state took about six weeks to have an impact. After you do this for a while, you basically, your stomach shrinks, leptin goes to your brain, tells your brain you're not hungry, you eat less, and that acts as a positive feed-forward cycle for us. Now, what's also interesting is um, beta blockers. I don't know how many people are on beta blockers out here, but we all know beta blockers are associated with weight gain. There's two big uh, theories. One is it decreases your heart rate, because beta blockers slow down your heart rate, and so that actually slows down your metabolic rate. But we also know, look over here, beta blockers block this pathway, which increases leptin production, which then shut down this other pathway. All right. And that's another mechanism why beta blockers could make or could lead you to have increased weight gain. Stress leads to growth. 
stress. You know, we talked about intermittent stress is good for you. So the old adage, whatever doesn't kill you, just makes you stronger, is totally true. Now let's go through all these things I talked about real quickly. Calorie restriction, basically the sign of symptom, you're gonna get hungry. Basically they've studied this. If you cut down your um, calories by 10%, you'll have a response. Overdosing, basically it's starvation. Intermittent fasting, sign of symptom is hunger. Basically eight hour fasting is the minimum daily amount that makes an impact. Five days a month, if you're doing alternate day fasting or once, once or twice a week, that'll make an impact. Once again, don't cut your calories too much. Exercise, your heart rate should go up. You should be short of breath, dizzy on exertion, sweaty, a little bit uncomfortable. The minimum dose for exercise is 10 or 15 minutes continuous. All right. You can overdose on exercise. There's something called overtraining syndrome. Some of these ultra marathoners get burned out, just cannot run anymore. You increase your cortisol, which is stress hormone. When that happens, um, actually interesting side story. A lot of these runners that everyone thinks is so skinny, when they take their shirt off, they have a little punch. And I'm talking about the marathon runners. And the reason they think is because they're in such a stressful environment, training high mileage, their cortisol levels up and cortisol makes your body store fat. And that's what we don't want. All right. Also, the last thing that's worse than exercise is you can injure yourself. Cold exposure, sign or symptom is shiver, goosebumps. Your minimal dose, probably 10 minutes. Most people think it's about 20 minutes in the cold. And overdose, basically a frostbite. Sleep, that we talked about. There's no symptoms of sleep. Minimum dose is six hours, probably better to get seven. Overdose, coma or death. That was probably a bad joke. All right. Not probably, it was. Okay, so to end, and I'm gonna to try to take some questions here. So eat, sleep, run, repeat. Train like an athlete, eat like a nutritionist, sleep like a baby, win like a champion, and do some fasting. All right, thanks a lot. I'm gonna, oh, there's one more thing I wanna show you here. These are two resources here. Um, the top one, and I'll put this into the chat feed. Um, this is an article that I wrote on intermittent fasting, it's a review article. Also, if you go to lifeandhealth.org and just search that website for intermittent fasting, there'll be a layman's article about basically all the stuff I talked about here. Okay, I'm going to put this in the feed and then we'll try to read some questions. Thank you so much for the presentation. I enjoy it. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Uh, but I, uh, I have a question. Could you please give me a summary about the sleeping time? Because with aging, we sleep less time than, uh, you know, normal. What is by age, the hours that you can sleep? Yeah, there, there's some studies that show as you get older, you probably need less sleep. Babies need the most. As you get older, more mature, you need a little bit less. But the bottom of that trough seems to be six hours at almost any age. And what I recommend, you, you can't go from four hours to six hours. It's impossible. But I go, can you get in bed 30 minutes earlier every night and see maybe you can start slowly lengthening your sleep cycle? I hope that answers your question. Thank you. All right, let me read this question here. Okay, so this is from Ryan. Are there any benefits to cycling between 5-2 and 16-8 monthly or quarterly? Answer is yes. And the big idea is um, sometimes you need to shock your system. You'll be on a plateau. And um, this is anything. And what's great about running outside or weightlifting 
is as you run, your pace usually picks up. So you actually do more mileage. As you lift weights, eventually you actually start pushing more weight. If you're not increasing what you're doing, your body's getting very used to it. Um, and if you get to the point where it's so easy, like suppose you've got a 20 pound dumbbell and you do your 15 reps, but you could have done 20, you're, you're not getting the benefit that you really want. Now, a lot of people will try to kickstart themselves back. They'll do six, I do 16, eight, um, six days a week. And then on Sabbath, which is Saturday for uh, me, I have basically no rules on what I eat or when I eat. Um, so I believe in the mini cycles, like in a week, and then these bigger cycles where maybe every three or four months you want to reset. So a lot of people will go back and forth between five, two and 16, eight to shock their body. So that's, that's a good question. Okay. Whoever liked the coma joke, I appreciate that. That's affirming to me. Uh, oh, keto diet and having gout. Yeah. So this is, um, basically there's a couple of big factors that trigger gout diet wise. And this is back to what Lindy Schwartz and a lot of people have talked about. It's amazing what your diet does to you. Um, but the two bigger, biggest triggers that are known for gout is simply eating red meat and alcohol. It's not anything like walking on your feet or anything like that. So we can make, we can actually make ourselves have more gout. I have a lot of friends who have given up drinking and given up meat because it's not worth it. Those are the two big triggers. All right. What training protocol would you recommend to a cardiac patient in terms of best way to improve muscle fitness and cardio? Okay. So I'm going to go from the ideal and then we'll work back. This is from Dr. Youngberg who had an awesome talk earlier this afternoon, or actually it was late morning about dementia. Um, ideally, let me, let me go, forget ideal, let me go minimum. If you do weight training two days a week for about 20, 25 minutes with eight separate movements, you're gonna get a benefit. So you can do a bunch of push-ups, squats, maybe pull-ups at home with a chair, you can cheat on the pull-ups, do that twice a week, you're gonna see a big benefit. Cardio, when they looked at the data, Basically, if you just do cardio three times a week, um, that's probably enough. And the, I didn't go over this because I didn't have time, but when you lift weights, your EPOC, your excess post-oxygen consumption, goes on for about two days. So you lift weights two times a week, and you have increased calorie burn for six of those days. All right, so a big impact. Cardio, after you're done running, the calorie burn goes away, but cardiorespiratory fitness is also important. Now, the three days a week is really good because then you have a day of rest in between. One of the big things that I see and I've personally experienced is injury. So I love running. I want to run more. I want to get better at running. It's funny. You don't get better at running by running all the time. That's how you get injured. So taking a day off is great. So basically, if you do three days of running, two days of weights, that's five days, and take a day or two off, maybe walk on a day. And actually, there's a bunch of other day we talked about. Take, take a walk, take a hike on the weekend. And then not just sleep, but you should have a day where you totally recover from exercise. And that day, probably walking is the most you should do. Don't even jog. You need your muscles to totally recover. Um, and that's that intermittent stress. Yeah, what about people who do not want to lose weight instead want to even gain weight? Um, then I wouldn't recommend fasting. There, there's two populations that intermittent fasting is probably not good for. That's for people, one, they're underweight. Two is diabetics on insulin because that's much more complicated to do. Um, even type two diabetics strongly recommend, strongly recommend, talk to your doctor, get them involved, 
you need to be monitoring yourself if you're on medication. You don't want to go hypoglycemic. Um, either your, your, um, your intake's low, your glucose is going to drop, or with the weight loss plus decreased calories, your glucose, glucose can really drop, and that's going to be a problem. Also, the other thing that sounds crazy is um, if we could all gain weight and it was all muscle and lose fat, who, who, would, who would take that? I think all of us would. And that's why the, the muscle mass retention with intermittent fasting is important. Ex resistance exercise training is really important. All those things are really linked towards survival, but even more than that, like better function. Um, a lot of times I'll ask my patients, can you get out of that chair without using your hands? And they have to use their hands to get up. If you can't get up by doing a squat without your hands, then your, your muscle mass, muscle strength is not strong enough. That's something you should really target and work on. Okay, walking for the senior that got lazy. Okay, <laughs> walking is great. There's, um, there's actually a study called the weight loss registry, and I'm actually in that. I didn't talk about this, but I've lost 45 pounds, and I used to be on Lipitor and Norvasc, got off of both of those, and that's why I'm a big proponent of lifestyle um, medications, and I'm not lifestyle factors, therapies to be healthier. But in that study, they tracked people, the average weight loss was 60 pounds, and they, were kept, they kept it off for over four years. The number one exercise, over half the patients, all they did was walk. Now, what they did though, is they walked about an hour a day. Now, walking is low enough stress where you can do that every day. So if you like walking your dog, walking with your spouse, talking, man, that's a, a great thing to do. Because you get two things. You get the social thing with your spouse. You get to communicate with them. They feel important. And you're both getting exercise. I mean, it's a great thing. Okay, I'm not sure. Gideon, um, what do you do to add body fat in a healthy way? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm guessing, I'm sorry, but maybe if you're underweight, then, um, then you're going to need to like really increase your caloric intake. And a lot of people that are underweight have some kind of chronic process that's making them sicker and they're actually burning more calories. And a lot of times I'll be a chronic illness, cancer even, and they'll kind of get what I call cachexia, they'll get smaller. Um, otherwise, probably don't want to try to gain weight. All right, everyone, thanks for your attention. Take care, everyone. God bless. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.